Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Real Life Theology Podcast, a podcast hosted by Renew.org. In today's episode, we feature a special interview between Daniel McCoy and Jeremy Bacon discussing the profound impact the Sermon on the Mount had in their lives. They talk about how the Sermon on the Mount found them, the comfort and affliction they experienced before discovering it, and how it changed their perspective on Jesus and his teachings. Glad to have you with us, and I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Well, Jeremy, I've heard that the ancient prophets comforted the afflicted and afflicted the comfortable. So in your life, were you more in a state of comfort or affliction when you, you know, discovered the Sermon on the Mount? That's a really thick question. I would also have to say, I think the Sermon on the Mount found me more than than me finding the Sermon on the Mount. Comforted or afflicted? I think I would say, like, in my personal life, I was probably in the afflicted category. I was, I was going through some, it was a pretty, pretty extensive rough patch. So there's plenty of comfort that I found in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, the same begins, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I was like, that's me. But more theologically, I think I, I, I was going in more comforted. In fact, I, I, almost, I almost didn't want to do the Sermon on the Mount because I was picking something to use to teach exegesis and stuff. And I was like, ah, that's all this practical stuff and not really meaty exegetical stuff. And like, I tried to avoid it. And I was doing it for uh, a teaching trip in Kenya. And I had already been a couple of times. I taught Romans 8 once. I taught uh, a week on the Holy Spirit the second time, not theologically lightweight stuff. And so I was, I was feeling pretty good theologically. And the Sermon on the Mount just totally knocked me upside the head. It would just, in, in all my theology and everything that I had lined up, I had not taken the kingdom of God seriously enough. And the sermon just afflicted that. Would be a decent way to put it. Yeah. My first impression of you when I was a freshman at Ozark Christian College, and you were, I think, a senior at the time, is just what I heard people say. You know, they said, man, Jerry Bacon, the guy's a genius, probably the smartest guy that Ozark's produced in a long time. And, you know, now I've got to know you, you know, we've kind of become friends. You know, I, my impression is obviously you're a very, very smart guy, gifted writer, gift, gifted thinker. But my, my main impression of you is that you look at Jesus and say, man, he's a genius. And that you genuinely do believe that this is the guy that has all the answers. And we really need to be living our lives based upon his teachings. This is the way to life. And so um, was there a point along the way where you started to see Jesus more that way? And was, was that kind of the, that interface with your, your study of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, as, as far as me being the smartest person at Ozark, I don't know about that. I, I, I wouldn't have wanted to go head to head with somebody like Matt Martin or April Bowen. But uh, as, I, I think as far as Jesus, really, Ozark kind of put me on a trajectory towards really making my entire faith life centered on Jesus himself. And not the idea of Jesus, but Jesus. And 
kind of drilling down to that focus pretty much describes my faith journey basically from then to, to even till now. Kind of just, the more I would focus on Jesus, the more the more other things just kind of got pushed to the periphery, like, okay, those are, maybe those are fine, maybe not, but I just focused on him, like forms of Christianity, whatever. I mean, even just being really intense about all the propositions I could affirm that gets a little less important and all the kind of cultural shibboleths just kind of, just kind of go to this side and just on him. But as far as I mean, honestly, really seeing Jesus as a genius, it probably did develop as I was studying the Sermon on the Mount. I, I probably started it into this stuff. Well, no, I did. I started into about 2018. Was that was when I was like, okay, Sermon on the Mount. That's this is this is what I'm looking into. And and eventually, I was really struck by the strong wisdom literature kind of strain in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, wisdom literature, instead of being like speaking down from the mountain, thus says the Lord kind of thing, it's it's the gruff guy on the street just going, look, kid, this is just how it works. And there's so much of that in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think maybe I started seeing it because I was just in a weird place. I mean, after I left the ministry, I ended up working at a big box home improvement store. And that's, and that's where I still work. And that's, it's a very real, sometimes a very gritty environment. And in that kind of environment, if the rubber doesn't meet the road, it's like you scrap it immediately and you move on. You're like, I ain't got time for that. Um, and, and I had been listening to a lot of different you know, types of podcasts just about other things like just people living their lives other places in the world, podcasts about leadership, a lot of the personal development stuff going on. And I was seeing how a lot of this stuff could really inform just kind of a living effectively in the store where I was working. And then I start reading the Sermon on the Mountain and I'm like, wait a second. Jesus is saying all of this. I mean, mm. it's like... That it's like the the cutting edge stuff, neuroscience and happiness studies are like the cutting edge stuff. And it's like, yeah, that's exactly what Jesus says. And like the cutting edge, like leadership, here's how you really lead people. And it's like, he's, he's already said it. And you know, at, at best, we're just, it's like we, we come to some new wisdom understanding of, okay, this is an effective way to be in the world. And when we come to that understanding, we realize, oh, Jesus was already there. Like, he's already been down this path, and he's just kind of waiting for us to catch up. And all this other stuff I was seeing coming out of uh, almost just a secular attempt to live wisely was just fleshing out. It was just kind of us realizing, oh, that's what Jesus was talking about. Because there, I mean, there's no one who understands people like Jesus. So I, he's, if I want to know how to deal with people better, he's the one I want to listen to. Um, I, I love the idea of rediscovering the wisdom literature. I think we're in chaotic times and people really need I think are searching for just, hey, help, help me know how to figure this life thing out. 
are are there some instances in the Sermon on the Mount that you could point to to help anyone who wasn't quite tracking with with that idea of wisdom literature and say, okay, this pretty clearly, you know, wisdom literature with within the sermon. Okay. I think actually one of the more interesting examples is the the paragraph on turning the other cheek, because that's one of the ones that seems the most impractical. It's like, okay, that's that's not really going to work. But I remember once, in fact, I, I kind of used this story in the book. Uh, my, my kids were on the younger side, and a lot of kids they would play with in the neighborhood, but there was a group of kids that were just not good kids. I mean, it was like, I, and, and, you know, kids talk, you find out pretty much everything that's going on in the neighborhood. So I just knew, I was like, okay, if Michael and his friends come by, let me know, cause that's going to be a problem. And, you know, this kid would harass my kids some, and, and I started really thinking about, okay, what am I going to do about this? You know, and yeah, I'm grown up. Yeah, you know, am I am I just going to chew the kid out? Am I going to go talk to the kid's parents? I mean, it, their house is right on the other side of my fence. And I was thinking, and those would be all the ways to not turn the other cheek. Just okay, you're 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 coming at me, but you're a kid. I have more power. Let me just push you out of the way so you stop bugging my kids. But I was thinking specifically about talking to his parents. I mean, realistically. Michael's a kid who's wandering around the neighborhood picking on other kids. He's doing that for a reason. If I talk to his parents, one of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to tell me to mind my own business and use some more colorful words when they do that, or they're going to discipline Michael in a way that is so disproportionate to anything he's done and will not help. So I'm like, ah, okay, how do I... And then I just started thinking, well, I, I just like, it's like, oh yeah, maybe I should think about how Jesus might handle this. And I mentioned in the book, one of the things I would do when we drive in and out of the, our neighborhood and would see Michael and his friends, I would just start waving. And I started rem remembering his friends' names. And anytime I saw them, I would try to say, smile, wave, say hi if possible, call them by name. Just started treating them with respect. Like they were people, like they were my neighbors, which they are. And instead of returning their insults with, instead of answering that with some kind of chewing them out or whatever, I returned it with friendship. And it was almost immediate that they would just wave when we passed by. I mean, it worked. And the power response might have temporarily gotten us something, but it would have it would have made things worse long-term. Mm. But the turning the other cheek, wave and try to make friends of these kids response, it was effective. My kids have never mentioned him since. I mean, that's one. I could come up with a few others if you wanted, but... Yeah, well, man, that's fascinating. Because ethics tends to deal with the right thing to do versus the wrong thing to do. It seems like this... Obviously, he's not, he's not transcending right and wrong. That, that would be, you know, Nietzsche. But Jesus is saying, look, there's more than just, you know, right, doing the technical right thing here. Let's actually move the needle 
let's actually change things. Is that what yeah. you noticed throughout the Sermon on the Mount? I, I think, well, and oh, let me see if I can put this together right. There's, I mean, there's, uh, on the one hand, you could talk about ethics. Is it, is it just what's right or what's wrong? You know, and does it work because it's right? Or is it right because it works? Or it does not matter if it works or not. It's the right thing to do. And I think separating all that out is a bad idea. Because really, when I was thinking through those, what to do with these kids, I was thinking, what is the most effective thing to do? Now, there are some angles from which I could have been entirely ethically justified to just come out, chew these kids out, and chase them out of my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. That may have been ethical. It would not have been effective. So uh, you kind of mentioned to some extent transcending ethics may be. I mean, he's, it's, there's a sense in which the whole Sermon on the Mount, everything, of course, it's the right thing to do and it works. And I think because the universe functions along the grain of God's character, I mean, it's still broken. So it's a bit more of a statistical thing than a guarantee, but because the universe still generally functions along the grain of God's character. What mirrors God's character will be the most effective thing. Mm -hmm. They they go together because He's the one who made this whole thing. Wow, that's really good. So could could you flesh that out a little bit more in terms of you know maybe some specific examples in which following Jesus' teachings is not just a matter of, well, if I'm going to be like technically really good, I'm going to do this, but it's not going to work. That That's our that's our tendency is we, we tend to think that yeah, it's not very practical. It's kind of like for the super spiritual Christians, but it's not real world stuff. Could you give us maybe some, some additional examples where, no, this is very practical and it really does work in a way that you know, may be very counterintuitive? Yeah. The the story about Michael and his friends is my favorite one. I I mean, I could think of a few others. Like Jesus said, well, I, honestly, the one that comes to mind is, let me try to think, because it connects with several parts of the Sermon on the Mount. Let me try to think of which, which part it would connect with more. Hardy, I, I guess it, maybe it would start, start with the paragraph on judge not lest you be judged. A lot, and in fact, almost everything I wrote, I started studying the Sermon on the Mount in 2018, but almost when, when I started writing, was pretty much always, almost always during, almost, uh, almost all of it was during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So that was a very extreme time. Mm -hmm. And really, to me, almost felt like the perfect time to actually take this stuff out into the marketplace in an extreme setting, does it actually work. And one of the things I was having trouble with, I mean, during the pandemic, everybody was just losing their minds. And on almost a daily, if not minute by minute basis, I would be seeing things that I perceived as moral failures. And, and I'm walking around my store and I'm like, Jesus says, don't judge. And I'm like, but I am having a hard time with this right now. And it made life very unpleasant. I mean, I just 
I just, my insides would be in knots all the time. And one of the things I eventually landed on was a prayer, the prayer from the Lord's Prayer, which is also part of the Sermon on the Mount. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that started becoming a mantra for me. So I would see something that I viewed as a moral failure. And I would pray that prayer. Okay, they have something that needs to be forgiven. But when I prayed, forgive us our debts, I was putting them and me in the same category and acknowledging I have stuff that needs to be forgiven too. Let me put that person in the fence with me and ask for both of us to be forgiven. Forgive us our debts. And that was huge. And making that my mantra, whatever knots were getting tied up inside of me, just released. And being in the world, it just became a whole lot lighter for me. That's actually one of the major ways I made it through the pandemic, working in a retail store without losing my mind. Mm. Mm. That's amazing. So that his teachings are not an impediment to real life, but they're more of a lifeline in the most extreme examples. They really are. And, and in fact, that's, that's one of the reasons, but some of the stuff, I think I quote Solzhenitsyn a couple times in the book, which I was drawn to read at the, at the beginning of that year. And part of that is because, you know, his experience in the Soviet prison system was so extreme. And I'm always like, I want to see the extremes because I want to see if this, this stuff works. And I think I quote him in a lot of the stuff about where that Jesus says about not clinging to riches. Don't seek treasures on earth, seek them in heaven. And he's, and so you see him in one of the most extreme possible situations. And he's saying, yeah, that's absolutely the smart way to go. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really, it's really good. Cause yeah, I think that it doesn't take much for most ethical systems to kind of fray and, you know, the, especially with regard to getting into a dystopian reality, uh, you know, <laughs> there's just, you know, every ethic, every, every ethical system is, is, you know, pushed to the extreme and, and it, it breaks apart. But what you're saying is that Jesus teachings, even in the extreme scenarios is, is it not only is the right thing to do, but it actually works. It actually brings peace and it actually helps move the needle for other people. Yeah. And I think, I think both of those are important, like the sense of bringing peace because the Sermon on the Mount is just ruthlessly focused on your heart. There's almost no mention of other people. There's like a couple times where Jesus is like, okay, the pagans run after that, just leave that to them. But it's almost all ruthlessly centered on your heart. And so living out Jesus's heart, his ethics, is the most effective way to navigate this world with a sense of peace. And because the world is broken, so the right thing doesn't always quite pan out the way you want, it does give you the statistically best chance of a positive outcome. If anything is going to help the people out there get better, this is what has the chance of doing that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. 
So in your, in your book, you know, Summer on the Mount, you, there's a part where you're talking about how heaven and the kingdom of God is near and in Jesus, it's real, it's close, it's accessible. And then you write this, you say, the implications for how I live the next time I walk out the door are enormous. You say it upends every investment I make here and indicates that true value lies in totally different things. So let's talk about values and how the Sermon on the Mount just takes a sledgehammer to our value system and starts to turn things right side up. What are some what are some areas in which in your life the values have begun to go right side up because of the Sermon on the Mount, where you're unlearning false values, you're, you're learning to value the things that Jesus values? That's such a dangerous question. <laughs> because any values I have that I feel have been challenged and subverse, subverted are, are very likely to be values other Christians have and are not quite ready to see them as wrong and in need of subversion. So that's a very dangerous question. I think maybe one of the best examples for me, and I think beforehand I wouldn't have said well, I'll just get straight to what the what the answer is, and then I'll, I'll flesh it out. Reading a Sermon on the Mount taught me to value people more. And beforehand, I don't think I would have, I mean, I certainly wouldn't have articulated, I don't value individuals very much. That wouldn't have happened. But I think the very first thing the Sermon on the Mount confronted me with was the issue of contempt, which is actually where I go with the paragraph that we generally say is, is about anger, because that's how Jesus introduces the paragraph, but I, I think it's more about contempt. And retail is a very contemptuous environment. We don't meet people at their best. People on us often don't treat us as, as fully worthy of respect. It's just an environment very full of contempt. And Jesus confronted me with that almost immediately when I started studying the Sermon on the Mount. And could you, could you flesh out what contempt is real quick? Viewing somebody as less than would probably be the simplest way to put it, that in some way I am superior to this person and they are not worthy of the same dignity and respect as I am. This is not like a momentary slight. It's like holding them. It's, it's literally holding them in a state of less than. Is, yeah. that, is that right? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think we are living in an era where contempt sells. Mm -hmm. Contempt is very marketable, and it's just uh, finding ways to define who is us and who is them. And once we've defined who is us and who is them, we are free to treat them with contempt. They are different. They are other. We don't have to treat them with the same dignity and respect that we would treat us. And so, you know, and working at a, at a big box retail store, I encounter people from almost any possible demographic and usually encourage them not at their best. I mean, working at the intersection of people, their possession and their money, it, it can get it can get hairy. And so learning to recognize that every single human being, no matter what, is someone created in the image of God. 
that has the exact same dignity and respect as me. And I cannot have contempt for anyone. And I mean, honestly, you could, you could just trace this through, through the entire Sermon on the Mount. I mean, the, the paragraph on anger, don't call your brother names, go on to, you know, judge not lest you be judged, all the way to the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So learning to value people in a way that really just makes any us versus them distinction kind of ridiculous and just see that we're, we, we are all, I mean, at the end of the day, we're all in the same pot. That was a value that Jesus definitely flipped around. And, and going back to, you know, forgive us our debts, you're, yeah. you're finding them in your group and you in their group. And yeah. At yeah. least finding, or at least finding that both of us are part of a larger group. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're uh, rapidly approaching another election. I'm glad to hear yeah. you say this because, I mean, it's it can feel like faithfulness to our faith to get, you know, the righteous indignation and to say, man, these people are taking our country the wrong direction or whatever, whichever, in, you know, whichever side of the aisle you can, you can hold the other side in contempt and it feels like faithfulness. And that's why we have to not let these teachings of Jesus off to the periphery. We've got to, we've got to let these be central. Um, Absolutely. Which it does seem like that, man, there's something very timely about the Sermon on the Mount for this uh, little moment we're in right now. Yeah. Yeah. Are there maybe, you know, two or three verses in the, in, in the Sermon on the Mount that really deal with contempt in a way that, you know, those who are watching or listening can kind of, kind of connect that concept with, with these verses, kind of find a hook there mentally to be able to say, okay, yeah, this is what, this is how I know that the Sermon on the Mount deals with the issue of contempt. Well, a lot of the, the, the flip side of contempt is respect. Those are the two sides to the coin. And I mean, even like you start with the blessed are the meek, I end up defining meek as someone who refuses to control and dominate others and instead treat everyone with respect. So the meek doesn't come in with power. The meek comes in with respect. And Jesus says, that's the way to inherit the earth, which is very counterintuitive. Sure. Honestly, almost everything at the end of chapter five deals with respecting people. You have the, you know, don't Jesus connect in the paragraph we usually say is about anger. He, he has name calling, you know, he says to his brother, Raka or fool, which that simply is a way to express contempt for someone. Mm-hmm. And he connects that to anger. And then he connects that to murder because if you don't value somebody, well, those are the two ends of the spectrum, either just calling them some name. Well, that shows contempt. Well, murdering them also shows contempt. It's just, those are just two ends to the same spectrum. Same heart. Yeah. Um, the, the paragraph on, I, I call it a paragraph on objectification on, on women. Mm-hmm. I think Jesus point is don't objectify women. What's the object? Uh, what's the opposite of that? Showing respect. The next paragraph on taking oaths, which seems like one of the most kind of abstract ones, it's about speaking sincerely 
Well, what is speaking sincerely? It is treating someone else with respect. I guess to, to jump ahead, the paragraph, judge not lest you be judged. That's a fairly obvious example of they, it, there is no us versus them. We're, we're, we're all in this same boat. I mean, especially when you think of be judged in the sense of the final judgment. Uh, none of us are going to be on the judgment seat that day. Not having contempt for others, recognizing we all share the same common humanity. In fact, that is, that is one of the main breakthroughs I had with my own judgmentalism was recognizing, oh, I need to rejoin the human race. Because the extent to which I allow myself to be human is the extent to which I allow other people to be human. Mm -hmm. And if I can do that for them and for myself, and one, the, either one will pass the other. So they kind of they have to rise together. How have you been able to use the teachings of contempt versus respect within parenting? Because you're a parent, three kids, right? How yes. has that been, has that been helpful for parenting? And because I'm sure a lot of people watching or listening, that's an immediate application to, to these teachings because, you know, we're parents and we yeah. definitely want to be, we, we, we definitely want, don't want to, you know, kind of let the concrete harden into some, some unfortunate attitudes that can kind of keep, you know, cropping up every day. Yeah. I think an important thing I realized going through the Sermon on the Mount is the Sermon on the Mount, it doesn't mean, not, none of the stuff about you not having contempt for people and all that, it doesn't mean you can't draw boundaries. In fact, drawing a boundary can be a way of showing respect for somebody and being clear about it. You know, if, if I tell my kids, okay, um, this behavior, I cannot respond to that. In, in, an, in an affirming way. I can't affirm that behavior. So if you go this route, this is the boundary I'm going to draw. Simply telling them that and being clear about it, it is kind of a sign of respect. Yeah. And so I'm not yelling about it. I'm just telling them what I am going to do based on what they're going to do. And I think that's a fairly respectful way of approaching it. I mean, you still draw boundaries, just, well, and... Honestly, there's a similar sense, especially the littler that kids get. Just recognize they're still people. Hmm. They're little people, but they're still people. And the, the struggles they go through seem silly to you, but that's because you're not five. When you were five, it was a big deal. And just have some respect for how difficult it is for them at that moment. Mm-hmm. Thank you guys for tuning into this episode. If you haven't already, check out the description. Uh, check out renew.org. We got some great blogs, some great podcasts, um, some great articles up there, as well as in the description, you'll see a link to Jeremy Bacon's book on the Sermon on the Mount. If you by any chance are interested in looking into his book, click on that link. It'll take you straight to it. You can read um, a little article about it on Renew and so forth. So once again, thank you for listening to the Real Life Theology Podcast, where we renew the teachings of Jesus to fuel disciple making. Now, stay tuned next week. We're coming up with another interview with Jeremy Bacon and Daniel McCoy. So I hope you guys have a great day. See you next week.